Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. In each episode, we seek to shine a light on successful progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer practical ideas to help drive change. And today we welcome two leaders in their field to explore the question of LGBT progress and our first foray into the essential topic of mental health. Our first guest is Josh Breckenfeld, Oversight Manager at Lloyds of London. Josh has business oversight responsibility for the relationship between Lloyds and some of its most important companies operating in the Lloyds market. He was proud to be one of the founding members of US Senate Glass Caucus, the gay, lesbian and allies organisation for employees of the US Senate and served on the steering committee for the inaugural Dive In Festival, the festival for diversity and inclusion in the insurance industry that today boasts events in some 17 countries and 32 cities. Today, Josh is the chair of the Pride at Lloyd's resource group. And Josh, thank you very much for joining us. Our second guest is Jemima Jefferson, a diversity and inclusion consultant and a trainer with Mental Health First Aid England. Jemima has worked in the corporate world for more than 20 years, primarily in investment banking, and her assignments have led her into the fields of insurance, government and consultancy. In 2008, Jemima set up the Gay Women's Network to address the central question, where are all the women in the LGBT networks? And she developed one of the first disability initiatives in investment banking, raising awareness of the impact of mental illness in the workplace and helps organisations understand the importance of employee mental health in the corporate world. Jemima, thank you for joining us today. And as always, we start the show by inviting each guest to take about one minute to talk about what you're up to, and then we open up for discussion. So Jemima, let's start with you. What are you up to? I am currently a national trainer for Mental Health First Aid England, which I absolutely love. And I would encourage anyone to look up Mental Health First Aid England and look at what they do. Um, So I'm training trainers as well as delivering their training programs or some of their training programs. So let me give you a two second introduction to mental health first aid. It was started in Australia in 2001 by a wonderful lady called Betty Kitchener, who still oversees the programs delivered in over 25 countries around the world and uh, is now um, was set up in this country in 2007 by a branch of the NHS, I think. And um, they train people like me to go into organisations and to charities and all over the place and to individuals to teach people about mental health because we don't learn about our own mental health. And, and we will draw some of that out for there sure. Now. And of course, I'm still on the committee of, of the Gay Women's Network, which I set up when I was working for Credit Suisse because there were very few women going to the LGBT network groups. And we wanted to kind of find out why. And it grew legs and it took off. And we have a 1,300 or 1,400 people on our mailing list through word of mouth. Um, and I would invite, you know, any LGBT women out there who want to join, to join, just get on the mailing list and see what we're up to. Um, because there's some great fun things that go on. All volunteers, we don't we don't make money out of it. It's all voluntary. Great. And we'll put the links to that on the website yeah. so that people can see that as well. Wonderful. Thanks, Jemima. Josh, how, how about you? What are you up to in the world of insurance? Uh, thank you. So um, in the world of insurance, Lloyd's Insurance Company, that is the company that oversees the Lloyd's Insurance Marketplace, 
really plays two roles. The first of which is what we're doing as an individual company, getting our own house in order. So making sure that we have our resource groups up and running that are focused both on LGBT. We also have one for gender. We also have one for workability. And we're also setting one up for parents and families as well. So uh, demonstrating best practice when it comes to setting up those groups. And then also having a look at our own policies and procedures. And again, using advice that we've received from uh, other industry experts as well as other industries themselves. Now, that's just the corporation itself. But I think the real impact that that Lloyd's has is as an industry leader. So uh, Lloyd's of London is instrumental in setting up the Inclusion at Lloyd's uh, group, which is comprised of members from around the marketplace. And again, keeping in mind that there's about 100 companies operating in the market, this is really the diversity and inclusion steering group that uh, acts as the fulcrum of change in the entire insurance industry. And that and that has been something that we have taken great pride in setting up and, and participating in. So, so let's get straight into that. We're going to talk about, you know, the, the world of insurance and it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have the most progressive of reputations. Clearly, there are initiatives in place. Are you seeing the world change or is there still a resistance to that? Yeah, I mean, I, as you mentioned in the bio, I'm, I have a background in US government. And um, to me, coming from that sector, which I think the US and the US government in specific is very good on some DNI or at least further advanced than insurance. It was a bit of a surprise to me coming into Lloyd's. And I think that surprise was reflected in a report that we put out called Holding Up the Mirror, where we interviewed uh, 40 HR leaders uh, from around the marketplace and just asked them about their DNI policies, what they had in place, how they prioritized it. You know, and at that time, um, only 27.5% of people responded saying that they had an actual DNI policy in place. And 80% of them said they had no steering group or working group that sort of guided DNI policy uh, within their company. So that's that's a pretty strong number. But I think those numbers and that report, which came out in 2016, is a baseline. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point, there's been a real boon of activity and we're seeing more people uh, get involved. We're seeing more resource groups come up and starting. I think some of the things that's driving that change, certainly from our perspective, is leadership. So in that same report, you know, we had 65% of respondents say that their senior leaders get the importance of DNI, and that is a very strong point. And certainly with Lloyd's of London, you know, we have our own champion, Inga Beale, Dame Inga Beale, mm-hmm. I should say, mm-hmm. um, who has really, you know, as a first woman CEO of a 327-year-old institution, uh, has really been at the forefront of driving change. And so you see that leadership really taking a hold of uh, of DNI and and wanting to progress it forward. I think the other reason why you're seeing the insurance industry come alive to this is the industry itself is under pressure from external forces. You know, there is modernization techniques and technology that is driving products closer to the client. And insurance has never really had to be close to the client. And so as an industry now, we are realizing that we need to look and feel and sound like our clients across the table, if we're going to weather the storm of modernization uh, and come out on top of it. And, and the whole field of insure tech, actually, and, and we have sort of, you know, fintech, regtech, insure tech is, 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 is growing very fast. And Jemima, for your work across um, other uh, sectors and, and thinking about what, jo- what Josh had just said about, about leadership, where do you see most corporate uh, initiatives are focused or needs to focus on? I think now I'm on, on, on the outside, looking back in, I have a level of disappointment for what organisations are actually achieving. And 
although there are many organisations out there, many companies out there, I could name some, EY is one, that that, that is doing huge, fantastic work, not just around diversity generally, but around mental health, which is my passion. Um, However, the change isn't happening. The change is not happening. The change is not happening fast enough. There are still very few ethnic minorities in senior positions, let alone women. Um, the LGBT community can do, can tend to do better um, for all sorts of reasons, but it's depressing that young gay and lesbian people coming out of university go into the big corporates and go straight back in the closet, having been very active in the community with at university because the corporate environment very often is not open, welcoming and friendly, or it doesn't feel like that when they get there. So the lived experience of individuals within organisations often doesn't reflect the good work that is being done, very often very good work being done by senior managers. And if I ruled the world, I would um, I would turn the way the world of work works around so it works for everyone because it was set up at a time when um you know by 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 white people by men who were in control of everything including owning their wives who were at home and staying at home and the world of work works really well for straight white men because it was set up by them and so if you're going to change it so that it works well for everybody else, you need to change how it works. And some organisations are starting to approach thinking about that, but it's really hard to do that in isolation. So, so the big thing that comes out uh, from what you were saying there, Jemima, is um, there's clearly, and, and also building what you were saying, Josh, about you know there, there's leadership and an expectation for change. There are industry dynamics coming around, but the reality isn't shifting. So if there are young execs coming in, and as you say, particularly LGBT execs are then going back into the closet. The big question that comes to my mind is how? How do we ch- drive that change and how do we accelerate the pace of change? Yeah, I mean, I think the point is valid in the sense that a lot of companies see the easy, quick fix is the recruitment issue, right? So you do some unconscious bias training, you eliminate photos from CVs, you know, you sort of get the talent pool wider, you know, and you have the folks that fit the spectrum that you're looking for coming into the workplace. And then as soon as they get there, they're greeted by a culture which doesn't support the recruitment process they just went through. So the hard work, the graph, is changing the culture of these corporations. And one of the ways that I'm seeing it successfully happen is by small incremental chunks where you're constantly widening the tent to get people understanding that DNI is not a gay thing. It's not a minorities thing. It is something that touches on each of us and how we can better bring our authentic selves to work. And and, and how do you do that? Is, is that about having... Um you know, kind of further working groups? Is it about, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that's why I'm hesitating. No, I, mean, are there, are there... I think the first the first rule book, certainly the one that I play off with is there is no rule book and there is no roadmap. I think people come into the DNI space and think somewhere there's a golden tablet that tells me exactly how to do this perfectly. And if I just follow these steps, you know, we're going to be A-OK in 2.5 years. And that's just not the case. The space is constantly evolving. Mental health is now coming into it where it should have been the entire time. And so people are learning and talking about what it means to be diverse and what it means to be inclusive on a much broader scale. And that's how you do it. You've got this permafrost of middle managers, these you know folks that have worked in the organization for 20, 30 years and said, well, none of this impacts me. None of this is, is, is me. 
when in fact suicide rates among males are higher than it is for females. And once you start incorporating that into the conversation, lights start clicking. And again, that doesn't take a lot of money and that doesn't take a great deal of strategic planning. It takes broadening the tent and listening to what other people want to bring to the conversation and incorporating that. You can do that through your resource groups. Uh, you can do it through lunch and learns. You can do it through you know show and tell exercises. All of that sorely chips away and erodes this this culture that uh, that lung executives find when they come into mm -hmm. company. And and Jemima, you were nodding along to, to to some of that and thinking around that. Oh, clearly there's a, the, the the mental health point particularly. Yeah. I mean, from your experience, what what could, do you have lots of practical ideas about how you can engage in organization to get through that permafrost layer to to get those kind of those, those you know that middle management male predominant uh, layer thinking differently well i was um, just before i answer that i was smiling because you reminded me josh that in 2004 when i got my first proper diversity manager job us diversity managers in investment banking many of whom are still there and still doing fantastic work all thought we would do ourselves out of a job in five years mm -hmm. And it's so funny to look back now from 2004 to now. And I think the the key is all of those things, Josh, that you've been saying are great. However, the people that come to all of those things are not the people you need to get to. So there has to be something that is uh, institutionalized within the organization and changes how, what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable and changes how you... You know, do you review every time there are um, um, promotions to see whether any disadvantaged groups are, are, you know, any groups are being disadvantaged by the process? Most organisations don't do that. I did a, a breakfast talk a couple of years ago for some HR professionals and they were telling me they don't get taught anything really about diversity by the CIPD. I think that's changing, but many HR professionals are are operational and they're there to protect the organisation. And so what happens when someone raises an issue that they're being treated unfairly is there's this huge unconscious bias towards supporting the uh, reputation of the organisation, which squashes the individual and very often they end up out of the organisation when that's not what was intended. And uh, it then perpetuates the myth. And many years ago I heard a lovely story by... Um, a lady who's no longer in the diversity community about how someone in a high, highly high money making area of one of the financial services companies was fired for their inappropriate behavior. But I haven't heard anything since. And this was many years ago. And so people are still getting away with because they, they make so much money for an organisation, they're too valuable to the organisation, they're being allowed to get away with bad behaviour. Whereas if industries as a whole said we won't accept that, mm -hmm. then those individuals would have to change their behaviour. And it, it means imposing things on people, really. You have to impose yeah. stuff on people. Maybe you have to impose um, training that, that people are uncomfortable going to and don't like. Maybe you have to push things harder. Maybe you have to drive home policies and procedures that people are not comfortable with. Maybe you have to retrain your HR professionals. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, until until you get to the heart of, of what's happening and you measure everything at every stage in the employee life cycle, you don't know what's going wrong. Most organisations don't do that. There are sort of three things that sort of, that sort of bubble up 
for me. One one of them is around it, it has to have a business imperative if it's going to get some attention. And you know, there's so much research out there that shows that actually you can outperform oh, yeah. through diversity and inclusion. But that still doesn't seem to be kind of landing as a business imperative. The second thing is about actually building it in that horrible expression, baking it in, <laughs> baking it into uh, appraisal systems and, and helping managers by, by saying, well, actually, we expect you and we will measure you and we will you know, remunerate you on the basis upon which you have, you have thought about the structure of your team and how you hire, etc. And then the third thing which really sort of came out from what you were saying, Josh, as well, is around kind of how do you make it personal? And this is the kind of the intersection again with mental health, which is, you know, if you're if you are talking to a mostly male uh, environment that uh, recognizes that men don't open up, that maybe that's a really good starting point and never to play on anybody's insecurities, you understand, to drive change. But actually that, that there is a reality that, that men don't. And so maybe is there some hope there in terms of getting people to think differently with a bigger intention of going, okay, so when I get that, I understand the value of DNI. No, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, you sort of have the policies in place and you can do the training, you can have the learning module and you can have the hotline numbers. But if people don't feel confident in calling it or if people don't feel assured that by calling it something will happen, you're just back to where you started. The track may be laid, but the train is not <laughs> leaving the station. Yeah. And so I think that's where the hearts and minds aspect comes in. I mean, you can have the policies in place and you can sort of have the quotas in place as well. But if people don't fundamentally feel that doing this is, number one, the right thing to do, not just the business imperative, but is the right thing to do, and that a consequence will, will happen as a result of it and the consequence will be positive, uh, then you're not going to get the traction that you need. So I agree. I absolutely agree that you, you know, you sort of need to have policies in place that say, you know, this type of behavior is absolutely without a doubt, zero tolerance around it. And if you see it, call this number. But people need to feel compelled to call the number and understand what the value of that is, both to the corporation and to the working environment of people around them. And does that require then role models, like good, good shiny examples? It, it of, requires of good role behavior. models and it requires allies. And to me, allies is the absolute untapped resource in any organization. Um, because, you know, I think allies has traditionally been of an LGBT sense, and I always think about it in a much broader sense. I mean, allies can be used as champions for good mental health behavior. They can be used to spot out, um, you know, any sort of discriminatory behavior against, you know, really anything. And I think empowering that group to speak up and to, to be emboldened and to, to recognize that what they have to say is important is the number one success factor. And Jemima, are you seeing more role models and allies coming through in, in the work of mental health for organizations as well? Or people are still very much going to head down going, I don't want to talk about my, because it's such a personal, such a personal moment of vulnerability when you have to step up and say, actually, I struggle with depression or I struggle with my environment. Uh, and, 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 and I only use those two as, as small examples that in the entire spectrum of mental health. Yes, definitely. And I think what I love about the mental health first aid training is it gives people um, the tools to understand what is meant by mental illness. We don't learn what is meant by mental illness as we're growing up. Can you share some of that insight today? Well, from the mental health first aid training, and one of the things that I talk about is how we learn about our physical bodies as we grow up. You fall over, you scrape your knee, you learn that you put some antiseptic on it and a plaster and it gets better what do you learn about how to deal with a broken head, you know, a broken mind when you're really, really miserable and you don't want to get out of bed? Nobody tells you how to deal with that. And so 
um, the mental health first aid training educates people on what the signs and symptoms are, how to signpost people to professional help, how to talk to people about it, listen to people more than talk to people, how to listen to people who are in distress because because we don't talk about it. Everyone's nervous to talk about it. They, there was a study by Mind a few years ago that showed that eight out of ten people um, being signed off work with a mental health condition would ask to put something different on their sick note. So it's a hidden, it's a hidden problem. And there's a, a study I read recently um, in Scientific American Mind, which talked about a longitudinal study of individuals from a town in, I think it was New Zealand, from birth until midlife. And they went back every year, every two years, and assessed the individuals as to whether they met the criteria for a diagnosis of a mental illness. And over 80% of people did at one point. Now, if over 80% of people are meeting the criteria to be diagnosed with a mental illness, at one point up to the age of whatever it was, 40, 45, that probably indicates that almost everybody will meet the criteria at some point in their life. And yet it's something we that is, that is ignored, this is people are afraid of. And I think originally your question there was about role models. And yes, there are more role models coming forward. There are more senior people coming forward and going, I'm, I have been dealing with depression all of my life. And now I'm going to talk about it. And one of the lovely things that happened when I was working on this at, at Credit Suisse is I there was a fantastic woman there who um, had been di- diagnosed with bipolar, which is where you have periods of depression followed by periods of mania. And she was very good at noticing when she was going into the depressed phase. So she would take herself off um, to her psychiatrist and ask for additional help. She never noticed when she was going into the manic phase. So she sat down with her team and she educated them about the illness and the condition and asked them to tell her when she was going into, into the manic phase. And so people like that, and she came and talked, she talked to people at Credit Suisse about this and brought a psychiatrist in to talk about it. It was a fabulous session. And I think those things are, are and people who are prepared to talk about it like that really raise awareness, as, as well as people like, the people know like Ruby Wax and Stephen Fry, they're really raising awareness of the impact of mental illness on everybody and also what we can do to look after our mental health, our own mental health. And in, and in the, um, the, the hard cynical truth that is financial services, uh, it, which is altruism is one thing, but actually it's about business it's about performance, is to my mind, this all comes back to a really important role in creating high-performing teams. And if you understand the makeup and the structure, we've had all of these, um, you know, the personality tests and we've had the, you know, kind of predominant kind of behaviours, et cetera, test. Is this just, this is part of um, the the human fibre and human nature of people who come around and work together in an organisation. Is the world beginning to see it a bit more like that or is that too hard-headed business given uh, this is about mental health and it is about human beings? I think they are. Once people are educated, they understand that a mental illness is just like a physical illness. If someone has diabetes, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to fear for your losing your job because you're, you're a diabetic. Whereas if someone has been diagnosed with depression, they fear losing their job because of the stigma associated with mental illness. And yet, and yet, depression depression could last a short time. It could last a long time. It may be recurrent. It may happen once and never happen again in the same way as, as many other physical conditions. And yet people don't know that. And the, the vast majority of mental illness, um, people, people recover from. 
or they live with and they live and they they live very successful business lives it doesn't interfere with what they do in their works which is which is really demonstrated by some senior people talking about their own mental illness that they've dealt with and not talked about for so many years it shows that it's perfectly possible to be um to 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 be affected by a mental illness and to continue to work normally and have a, a normal life um, just a shame that it's you know it's only now that people are starting to feel comfortable talking about and, it. And, and yet, actually, in business over you know decades, hundreds and hundreds of years, you know some of the most impactful leaders have been kind of defined as being utterly brilliant, slightly for their madness. Yeah. You know, and I'm really not being trite when I when I say that, but it's like you know kind of the world looks at it in, in a brilliant sense. But actually, when you begin to unpick that in terms of personality types and um, ways of looking at the world, actually, that that's an extension of of how that reflects day by day, minute by minute, how we live our lives in a, in a corporate environment. I think there's some of that that's actually somewhat damaging because you have all these senior. Le- if, if you're if you're a quote unquote normal person going to work every day, you know you look at these leaders who are both manic and brilliant at the same time, and you think, well, that doesn't apply to me. But yet, if you have a line manager who says, you know what, I need to take a day off. I, you know, been a lot of stress. We hit the deadline. I just need to take a day off. Mm-hmm. To me, those are the individuals that I think should be a role model. Having line managers just speak up and say, look, I'm taking the day off because I just need to have a day where I fold laundry and don't do anything else. You know, that is what is going to impact people because that is relatable. You speak about 80% of people qualifying for some amount of, of, of mental illness. I mean, that speaks to volumes of people that have, you know, something that it's just the once in their life or maybe, it, you know, it happens reoccurring, but finding the people who are dealing with it on a day-to-day basis in a, in a way that's relatable to me is a much more impactful way of doing it. And I think we're seeing line managers step up in that way, you know, putting in the out of office, you know, I'm out of office for today, mm-hmm. you know, and telling your staff what today means. Uh, you know, to me, that's where the impact and, is. And the reason why. So that marks a perfect moment to turn to Cynthia and Robert, who have been on the lookout for research to support today's discussion. A Financial Times article from earlier this year shared the findings from a survey carried out by the charity Stonewall. The results from the survey were worrying. Half of the trans employees surveyed were so afraid of discrimination at work that they concealed being LGBT. And alarmingly, one in eight have been physically attacked by colleagues or customers. The 870 trans or non-binary respondents in the survey reported a range of attitudes from their managers, including hostility and bullying that had led them to self-harm, having suicidal thoughts or quitting their jobs. Financial services has the highest percentage of absences due to mental health, according to a recent article in HR magazine. The research was carried out by Advisor Plus, with records of more than a quarter of a million employees. It shows that since 2013, almost 34% of absence days in the financial services sector have been due to mental ill health. This compares to 24% of absence days in the retail sector and 22% in utilities. It is important for businesses to create supportive cultures and policies around the area of mental health. So thank you, Cynthia and Robert, and always links to the references and research can be found on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And do remember that's diversity with a C, not an S. You can also sign up for early notifications of future episodes. And please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. You can find us on all good podcast channels. And if you've enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate a rating. It all helps promote the episodes.
So one of the things I've been sort of thinking about as we've been talking, one of them is around, you were saying, Jemima, about a lot of uh, young execs going back into the closet when they come out. And then I think obviously about my career journey and uh, now I run my own business and I'm sort of more comfortable out very sort of late in life, if you like. But I spent a lot of my time in my career thinking, please don't ask me about my weekends. Please don't ask me about anything personal and just kind of keeping those barriers up. And I do, uh, it's very easy to make sweeping assumptions about what being gay in the workplace feels like and, and it's like today. And we kind of say there's been great progress. Um, but I'm interested to explore what it really does mean to be gay uh, today. And I, Josh, I knew you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, on the outside, I do think, and I agree with you that there has been a lot of progress. You know, being out now in the workplace is, is easier than I think it has been. But it's still something that uh, folks are dealing with every single day. And I think one, one of the, the thoughts that sort of crystallizes in my head is, you know, a lot of people, when they think about coming out, they think about it as this once-in-a-lifetime experience where there's bunting and everyone knows and, you know, everyone gets a free toaster and it's one and done. But the actuality is, is that in a workplace, and certainly if you're client-facing or if you're dealing um, with clients in different ways, there are hundreds of decisions you're making every day about whether you as an LGBT person are coming out to the person that you're currently interacting with. And I think that is a really empowering notion for allies as well, because I think a lot of folks that I speak to about this on the allies, uh, from the allies, feel that, you know, oh, you're out and you're gay and everyone knows that. And now it's just sort of protecting your right to be here. When in actuality, the purpose of an ally is to create that comfortable space where people feel comfortable in being out and making that uh, making that assertion. So I think it's still a challenge. I think it's still a struggle. You know, I'm, I'm an out gay man. I have a photo of my husband on my desk. I have clients, probably only half of them know that I'm out. And that's not because they've done something or haven't done something. That's just where I perceive uh, the safety to be. And that, that's often about the, the relationship you have with that individual. I mean, it's very, very similar. So I've, I've got some clients that, you know, very, very outward and others that, you know, that, that just the conversation either hasn't come up or I've kind of felt that predominantly it's a business engagement more than a personal engagement. So I've erred on the side of, of, of kind of keeping my private side uh, away from it. Um, I mean, Jemima, from your perspective, you know, kind of years in investment banking and uh, is, is this your reality? Is this your truth as well? Well, I only discovered I was gay when I was 35 and I'd never taken on any of the negative messages as a result. So I didn't grow up feeling uncomfortable about myself. So I just went straight into work and went, hey, guys, guess what happened to me? <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. I, I actually thought it was really funny. and um, And I just approached it from the perspective that it would be okay and everyone would be okay with me because I'm the same person. I haven't changed. And I I did go through some, obviously, some psychological uh, um, stuff around it because it's a huge change to your life as well as a huge change to my physical life and where I lived and who I lived with and what I did and who my friends were. Um, so I went through all of that for a few years, but I just don't, I don't even think about it now. So I don't even think about whether people know or not. I don't think about um, who knows, who doesn't know. But then I've never been in a client facing role like you, Josh. So I think I might feel a bit differently if I did, but I just, I just, you know, either people know or they don't know and either they use the right pronouns or they, they don't. And I correct them or I don't correct them if the opportunity isn't there. I just, I don't really care 
because it's it's me they're intera- interacting with. So, so what advice would you give some of these young execs coming into the corporate workplace, particularly in financial services, and um, you know thinking about? I mean, if they haven't got the confidence, if they haven't got the tools to then correct people with pronouns, etc., and and to do that, any any advice you? They give? shouldn't have to have the confidence. The environment should be welcoming for them. It's it's the that's the wrong way. You know, it's the wrong way to think about it. The environment should be there, and you know, if there are people walking around the organisation with all the, the rainbow lanyards, then they will feel comfortable. But for a lot of organisations, that's just not happening. And to, to follow on from that, LB Women did some research in 2016 asking gay women at work um, how, how, you know, how out they were, basically. I was really shocked that just in 2016, 73% said they are not completely out in all aspects of work. Now, that doesn't mean... Now, being out at work for me doesn't mean everybody in the whole organisation knows. It means you're comfortable with yourself and if somebody gets it wrong, then you'll correct them or or you won't, but you're comfortable with that. You know, there isn't an issue. So if 73% are not out at work, 73% of those women are not feeling comfortable to be who they truly are at work. I was really shocked with that. And I, I absolutely agree with that number. I mean, I, th- I think that's probably an accurate representation. And again, it comes back to to the point that you made. You know, it's not necessarily the individual's ability to stand up for themselves. It's also about what is the corporate culture feel like for them as as a place of comfort. And, you know, I am not obsessive about making sure that every single person that works in my organization that is gay is out. That's not my role. And I don't want to know and I don't want to have a list necessarily, although I do want to know tracking from a percentage because I think it's important to monitor. Um, but you want to have a culture where people feel empowered to be themselves. And if they choose to be out in the workplace, then they should have that as an option that comes without consequence and also comes without regret or remorse. Um, and that is what we should be building towards. I think you're spot on with that. Mm-hmm. And I think coming back to this whole point about, you know, it's about bringing the best of people around, you know, and because there is a commercial intention here and it's commercial intention that will ultimately drive change from the top and through the management, middle management layers who have to think very differently. And the power of allies and role models is, is incredibly important important and I and I think it's been it's been a fantastic discussion. I just want to thank you both very much for taking the time. Josh and Jemima, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great, thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Robert Pinto Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website at diversitypodcast.com and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity, remember to give us a rating or review in iTunes. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.